those billboards on the road that say Jesus saves or some version of that as you're driving down the highway. Um, there's this really famous one in Los Angeles. There's a picture of it here. It's, a, it's like a neon sign that um, originally was on top of this ministry and then uh, it passed into other hands. And now it's on top of this like posh hotel. I just think that's really interesting. Like Jesus saves on the top of this hotel in LA. Uh, but I've seen billboards like this, you know, Jesus is the answer, Jesus saves. Um, and whenever I see those, I, I wonder to myself, I find myself thinking, uh, what must this seem like to somebody who isn't religious or doesn't believe in Jesus? Like, what does this cause them to think about? Um, you know, Jesus saves me from what? Or, or Jesus saves me for what? Like, what's the purpose? Like, what's his plan for me having saved me if he's real? I, you know, I try to put myself in the shoes of someone um, who uh, isn't necessarily a believer in God. Um, of course, when I see these Jesus saves signs too, it reminds me of the amazing memes that just go around the internet. Jesus saves. Uh, I've compiled a couple. Jesus saves. Hockey goalie Jesus. Um, Jesus saves. Soccer goalie. There's a lot of goalie Jesus imagery on the, online I found. And then, of course, the most prolific version, Jesus saves at the computer screen. That's right. <laughs> the little halo behind him. Gotta love it. Jesus saves. Uh, of course, that's a true statement. It's a biblical statement. Jesus was called the Savior uh, when he articulated his mission. He said, I came to seek and save the lost. Um, but I suspect that even those of us who have a faith in Christ somewhat misunderstand what we mean by Jesus saves. Um, it's such familiar language. I, I just, I don't think it jars us and shocks us in the way that it should. At least that's true for me. Um, I think part of it is the language itself in English, saved and unsaved, these, these categories. They seem a little nebulous. It's kind of like this conceptual thing, these categories. Like Christians as a group kind of move from this abstract category of unsaved to saved. It seems a little impersonal, I think. The word saved or salvation, I don't think give us this visceral, gut-level, jarring sense of what Jesus really did for us. They just seem sort of like these concepts. And, and so I think as a result, we end up having a little bit of a watered-down idea of what it means when we say Jesus saves. And so as we prepare in the next couple of weeks to step into you know, Palm Sunday and then Good Friday and Easter, this important uh, season in the life of our church I want to think in a fresh way about this question, about these words. So this is the question I want us to think today. What do we really mean when we say Jesus saves? What do we mean by that? Perhaps more importantly, what did Jesus mean when he said it? What was he thinking about? What was his category when he said, I'm the Savior and I save? What did he mean by that? He wasn't saying that he was going to do something abstract and impersonal. He meant something very personal and very tangible. And so we're going to discover a little bit today of what Jesus meant by this. So if you brought your Bible, turn to John chapter 11, the Gospel of John chapter 11. If you're not familiar with the layout of Scripture, uh, the Gospel of John is the fourth book in the New Testament. Um, we like to kind of take notes and highlight things and go through the biblical text together. So we have highlighters and stuff on the tables. Feel free to 
grab one of those and I'll alert you to some things that we, as we go through that are, I think are important for us to key in on. Um, also, just want to say up front um, that when I say as we go through this passage, when I say something like the original Greek, what I mean by that is that all of the New Testament documents were written in Greek originally. And so as we try to understand what they say, sometimes it helps to kind of go back to that original language and find some nuances there that get a little bit lost in translation coming into English. Um, so that's what I mean by that. So this is one of my favorite moments in Jesus's ministry, what we're going to look at today. Um, when we meet Jesus in this passage in John 11, uh, he was nearing the end of his life on earth, and he had already run afoul of the Jewish religious authorities, the Pharisees, the um, temple establishment, all of the priests, they did not like him. And he had done two things very recently that really irked them. Um, and so in their minds, he was like on thin ice. So the first thing he had recently done is he healed a man born blind. He gave the man sight. Now think about that. He was born blind. He didn't have an astigmatism. It wasn't, you know, his prescription was out of date. He had never seen anything. And Jesus gave him his sight. And it just shocked the community. This man who's been blind his entire life can see. And so the religious authorities are like, well, we've got to investigate. And so they, they bring the man in for questioning. Like, are you, are you telling the truth you were actually blind? And, and then they bring his parents in. They're trying to figure out if this whole thing really happened. And I love this moment. The man who was born blind, who can now see, he says to the religious authorities, hey, look, I, this Jesus guy, I know you have a problem with him and you think he's a sinner or whatever. I don't know anything about that. Here's what I know. I was blind and I can see now. <laughs> That's what I can give you. And so the authorities, after that, they sort of begrudgingly acknowledge this miracle happened. Okay, yeah, he was blind and he can see now. But they were so committed to the idea that Jesus was a sinner because he didn't follow their traditions and rules the way that um, they wanted him to. They were so committed to the idea he was a sinner. They were like, well, okay, he did a miracle, but it wasn't from God, you know, because he's a sinner. You know, God wouldn't do that through a sinner. And so they were not happy about this miracle. The second thing Jesus had recently done that bothered them is he went into the temple during a major holiday, a feast with tens of thousands of Jewish pilgrims. They're all there. And he stands up in the middle of the temple and says, I and the Father are one. An unambiguous claim to be God in public right there. And they actually tried to stone him for that, and he had to leave. Um, because they knew he was claiming to be God. But what Jesus did next, what we're going to read today, is arguably his most dramatic and shocking and public and observable miracles, and it led directly to his arrest and crucifixion. So let's get into it. John 11, 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. There's three names there. Let's circle them just so we're kind of keeping track. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that, highlight this, God's son may be glorified. God's son may be glorified through it. Now, 
Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Highlight that. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Highlight two more days. And then skipping down a little bit, he went on to tell them, he's talking to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I want to highlight this, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So we'll stop there for a second. Um, There's this family from the town of Bethany. Bethany's right next to Jerusalem. It's like two miles away. There's this family that seems to have been very close to Jesus. They're not described as his disciples. They're described as his friends. And it says he loved them. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, he loved them. And, And Jesus says, our friend Lazarus. And as far as I can tell, that's the only time Jesus ever used the word friend in the literal sense that we think of. Lazarus was his friend. You know, Jesus other times would say friend is like a greeting to somebody. Hey, friend. But this is like, he's my friend, Lazarus. And he finds out he's sick. And Jesus says, this isn't going to be the end of the story for Lazarus. It's not going to end in death. In fact, this situation is all about God's glory. He doesn't rush to heal Lazarus, which must have puzzled his disciples because he's healing people all over the place. And now his friend, who he loves, is sick, and Jesus seems strangely not that urgent about it. In fact, two more days he hangs out where he was. And he tells the disciples this strange thing, I'm glad I didn't prevent his death. Because what they're going to see is going to deepen their faith in profound ways. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Highlight that, in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, I'm going to highlight what she says here. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Highlight that. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who's come into the world. Uh, We know from uh, ancient writings from this time period, the first century world, that um, there was a lot of superstitions. It wasn't in the Bible, but there was a popular superstition that the soul kind of hung around the body for a few days after death. 
and possibly might go back into the body because there were accounts of people seeming dead and then a day later they are alive again or they heal or whatever. And so there was this feeling of a, a few days, maybe they'll come back to life. So Jesus deliberately waited and arrived after that window so that everybody would have believed Lazarus is really dead, he ain't coming back. And Martha comes out to him, Lazarus' sister, and says to Jesus, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. When we read that, I think it strikes us as like anger, like, why didn't you heal him? You know, that kind of thing. But that's not, when you look at the original phrasing, it, it doesn't convey anger. It's just, it's sort of a simultaneous grief and faith. She's basically saying, I believe that if you'd been here, you love him, you, you would have healed him. Like, I believe that. I, I believe that you are who, who you say you are and that you love him. I'm also super sad that he's gone. That, that's what we're seeing as a moment of grief there. Um, and Jesus says, Lazarus is going to rise again. She thinks he's speaking generally. Well, like, yeah, okay, we're all going to you know, be raised. But yes, Jesus is not speaking generally. And then he says this incredible phrase, I am the resurrection. Resurrection is not some impersonal, abstract event that will happen to a group of people. And sometime in the future, Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection. I am the source of life. I am the resurrector. Let's keep reading. Verse 28. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing that her sister said. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. Highlight that phrase, deeply moved in spirit. We're going to talk about what that means. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Here Jesus is seeing the wreckage of death. And he's deeply moved in spirit, it says. Um, the original Greek word that's translated as deeply moved is much more forceful than that. Deeply moved, I think, in English just sounds like you kind of had a swell of emotion. He just sort of was overwhelmed, felt, felt sad. It's closer to outraged. In fact, it was a word in the ancient world that was used of a war horse snorting in. Jesus is incensed that this has happened. And he, he weeps. As God Almighty, Jesus is outraged over the fact that there is death in the world that he created because death was not part of his design. As a man, Jesus is grieving with friends over the loss of his friend, of their brother, and he hates that this has happened. You may remember in the Garden of Eden when sin first came in and polluted the world. 
God spoke to Adam and Eve about what had happened. And he said, what is this you've done? What, what have you done? You know, God allowed the possibility of rebellion by giving us free will. Now Jesus is on earth in the flesh, seeing the fallout of this up close. When he's weeping here, this is the same God that was in the garden experiencing loss, not in theory, but personally as one of us. This is his friend. And, and, and Jesus enters into this pain, into this grief. It's real. You know, he doesn't say, I'm here, stop worrying. I'm going to make it all better. Stop crying. He doesn't say that. He, he, he steps into that pain and he grieves. And he could have told them to stop crying based on what's coming next, but he didn't. Let's keep reading. Verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, highlight that, once more deeply moved, same language, he's incensed, outraged over this. He came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew you always hear me. But, and I would highlight this, I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice. Highlight that, called out in a loud voice. Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So Jesus walks up to the tomb and he's incensed. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm going to undo this. And then he prays to his father publicly for everyone else, right? Lord, Father, I know you hear me. You always hear me. But for their benefit, I want them to know that you sent me. I want them to know what's happening here. I want them to grasp the gravity of what's happening. And he calls, Lazarus, come out. And I want to just stop for a moment and think about that, that moment there. The sense of disbelief. I mean, imagine all of the people gathered around and Jesus yells into a tomb, come out. And everybody waits and looks in there. I don't know when they realized it was happening. Maybe they heard something in there and then they see him. They buried him four days earlier. They have the funeral and he walks out. It's a spine tingling moment. I mean, it's just when you really let yourself think about it, it's mind blowing. And in Lazarus, we're seeing that resurrection is not an abstraction. It's not a concept. It's not impersonal. It's not a ghost floating up out of a body. Resurrection is real. It's personal. It's physical. Jesus had called his friend back to life. Earlier in his ministry, he said he was going to do this. 
If you rewind to John chapter 5, Jesus said this, Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. All those in their graves will know Christ and hear his voice. Lazarus heard that voice come out. Lazarus was just the first example. And he won't be the last. He heard Jesus' voice and he walked out. Real resurrection. Lungs filling with air again. Heart beating. Of course, there was rejoicing and wonder over this, but remember the religious leaders who are not happy about what Jesus is doing. We find out what happens next. Verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Highlight Sanhedrin. It's the Jewish ruling council. It's a formal legal gathering. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. And then highlight this next phrase. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Skipping down to verse 53, the conclusion here. And I would highlight this. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. From the day of Lazarus' resurrection, they plotted to take his life. You see the irony of that? The day that Jesus gave life to Lazarus, they plotted to take his This leadership couldn't take this. This public resurrection, two miles away from their temple, it's hitting too close to home now. We can't keep dealing with this. Everyone's going to believe in him. Now, they, I think, were afraid because the Romans, who controlled everything and were sort of propping up this religious establishment in Jerusalem, they had a zero-tolerance policy on people claiming to be God, claiming to be a king, and they knew that if... The Romans would come in and crush Jesus. They're probably going to just crush all of them too, just for good measure. So they're a little bit worried about that. And they resolved to kill Jesus over this. I mean, an act of blasphemous futility to take the life of the one who is the resurrection and the life. And they choose to do it. He had just raised a man from death to life. And they said, we're going to kill him. So what do we really mean? The question that we started off with, what do we really mean when we say Jesus saves? This very familiar pairing of words. What Jesus means and what we should mean is this. Through Jesus, we cross from death to life. Death to life. That's what salvation is. That's what Jesus saves means. We were dead and now because of Christ, we are alive. Death to life, not an abstract idea of unsaved and saved. Death to life. It should be that jarring when we think about what salvation actually is. And when you, when you zero in on that idea that salvation is moving from death to life, you start to see it everywhere in the New Testament and throughout Scripture. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 2. He said to the Ephesian Christians, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead 
in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. The prodigal son parable, this rich picture of the gospel, one of the most famous things Jesus ever taught. The very last verse, here's this idea. Again, the father is speaking to the jealous older brother about the younger son who's returned. And look what he says. He says in Luke 15, we had to celebrate you know, the return of the prodigal son, and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I think we need to begin speaking and thinking about salvation in this way because salvation has a little bit of a moralistic feeling to it, that word, at least in my view it does, like God saving me from kind of being a bad person, where he's kind of saved me from my worst tendencies, or now I'm a good person because I've been saved. But that is not the fullness of the gospel. Jesus didn't die to make you moral or just change your status from an abstraction, unsaved over to saved. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what he meant about I'm the Savior. He meant rescue. He meant death to life. And so when we hear save, we have to start thinking rescue. That's what it means. You were dead, separated from the Lord because of our sins and destined to stay that way forever. But because of Christ, we are made alive. We are rescued from that. We could never do it on our own. We had to be rescued. And we've been made so alive that even when we physically die, that's not the end of the story. Just like it wasn't the end of the story with Lazarus. Jesus is going to undo that. Just like he did for Lazarus, just like he did for himself. And it's real. You look at John 12, a few verses later, we read about Lazarus after he was resurrected. Look at this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. What's that dinner conversation like? This is some amazing hummus. You like died, right? I mean, (laughs) he's having dinner with Jesus. This is resurrection, real life. Lazarus was really alive again having dinner. And I think if we're going to experience the full joy of what Jesus did, if we're going to walk through life with a true, clear sense of who we are and who God is, we need to grasp what Jesus really meant when he said he saved us. He has opened the door for us to go from death to life, to be restored to the relationship God always intended for us. He rescued us. It's as if we were drowning in in these dark, icy waters of sin slipping beneath the surface. We can't get back to the surface. And he jumps in and rescues us and gives his life in the process. That is what we should think when we say Jesus saves. He rescued us. We were dead and now we're alive. Jesus did not improve our lives. He didn't just change a status. He didn't make us better people. He didn't just sort of punch our ticket to heaven. He saved our lives. He rescued us. Without Christ, we are lost. Because of him, we are found. You know what these tiles represent on this cross? Death to life. Death to life. 
And now because of that life, we can live in freedom, enjoying relationship with God, knowing that whatever comes, we will be restored to life by the one who is the resurrection and who is the life. In the same way Lazarus and Jesus were raised, we will all be. We've gone from death to life. And as a result, we can give our hearts, give our lives to our rescuer who gave everything, gave his life so that we would have life. So I'd encourage you as we approach Good Friday and Easter to begin thinking in these terms. It's not just a time to remember Jesus's death and resurrection, but to remember that through that, we went from death to life.